Steven, I am so happy we have Why? Nagin Prasad here on the show with us. Nagin is has made movies. She's written a book, uh, How to Make White People Laugh. She just launched her own podcast, Fake the Nation. Nagin, how's it going? Welcome oh, back. This is your third episode on. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be Where's here. Where's that accent from? What do you thank mean? you for having me. I, I don't can't. know. The, the California, <laughs> is it California? I mean, yeah, accent. I grew up in California. Is it Calif- so I think it's, I think there's a little. Is there a little, sl- per- is there a little Farsi in there? There's a slight well, I, Azerbaijani guys, accent in there. Yeah, guys, I speak four languages. So <laughs> what I do you don't speak? Know. You speak French. I speak French. Did you grow up speaking some French? And your did your no, parents no, no. speak French? Or no? I mean, my grandfather spoke French, but I'm not sure why he did that. Maybe I have no idea. He mm. probably learned it in school. But uh, the uh, I lived in Paris for a little bit of time. Not. Where'd you live? Um, Where'd you live? Uh, I lived on the Rue de Faubert du Temple. Um, in the, at the République oh, uh, metro stop in the 10th. Um, hmm. what'd you, were you studying there? Were you I just... was all told I probably lived there for like a year and a half, but like in six-month chunks. So mm. like I, st- I studied there. Were you and just then, finding um, life and love? I was finding life and love. I was waiting tables. Hmm. Um, I taught English. I uh, was a cashier for a minute. So yeah, I did some different jobs. French, Farsi, English and um, Azadi, which is the language they speak in Azerbaijan and also like a province of Iran. Called How do you say Azadi? Azadi, yeah. Spell it. Um, A Z E R I. So wait, what's the? You had some questions last episode. Yes, I have some. We okay. answered. We went through one of them. So uh, one of the questions that seemed to pique your interest, I don't know, is I actually like the first one you had. Oh, the first one. Okay. And Stephen liked the second one. Yeah, I like the first one too. Um. Oh, do you, okay. You like the first one, so race are white people uncomfortable talking about race? Does it make you feel uncomfortable when people of color talk about race? So, what, does it, what does it mean? Like, um, how do they talk about race? Like, for instance, I read all of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. I read all his books. I actually think they're brilliant. He's yeah. a very smart guy. Yes. Did it make me uncomfortable because he might have had opinions that were really different than, let's say, a white person's opinions, the average yeah. white person's opinions? No, because it was so interesting to see like such an intelligently presented, completely opposite opinions of what I had. So yeah. I actually learned from it. And well, my my feeling about it is this: I've only ever lived in America, yeah. right? And I've only ever been a white person. Although so you I, didn't live in Paris, <clears throat> I didn't live in Paris like you. <laughs> I have had a little bit of not code switching, but a little bit of identity switching, a little bit in that I grew up in one religious tradition then migrated to another, which Mm -hmm. happened to be the religious tradition of my parents that they left, so I kind of returned. So I have had a little experience of being on one side of some kind of barrier or border. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say barrier, maybe not even border, and then going to the other. And then you perceive the world differently as a result. But those are different, you know, being American, being white, you know. and, um, And so... All I have is my perspective, and I think like um, most people, you try to see the world from a lot of different perspectives, especially when people are being, you know, mistreated. I mean, that's kind of the history of humankind is we've gotten gradually, emphasis on the gradually, better at being less to other people. But very gradually, and there are ebbs and flows and so on. So I think it's a natural impulse for everyone, whether you're American or not, whether you're white or not, to say, let me understand the ways in which my condition or my privilege is blinding me to situations that other people have. And that situation may be dire, may be violent, 
Or it may not be. It may just be more of a cultural or perceptive thing. The thing that worries me is that in this country, as an American, in, as a white American in mm-hmm. this year, 2016, I feel like a lot of the conversation about race now is more supercharged in a way than it was 20 or 25 or 30 years ago, which yeah. is really disappointing to me. Well, particularly um, in the past few weeks with all these like shootings and stuff, it seems to be very kind of like literally black and white. Well, and I'll tell you, just as a quick aside, the reason why I came up with this question is because, you know, like as James said, there's been these incidents of police brutality and shootings. It's been really insane. And, you know, we talked about it on my podcast, Fig the Nation, which you can subscribe to. (laughs) Don't forget Um, to star it. (laughs) Don't forget to star it. When you say star it, you have to say five stars. If you invite people to just Just star star it, that's like one star. Oh, that's true. Don't Don't forget to five star Here's what you got to say. I know you're new to the podcasting game. It's it's a little something (laughs) like this. Please feel free to leave a review for my podcast, Fake the Nation, on iTunes as long as it's a five-star review. Okay. Oh, there it is. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and when we were recording the, the podcast, the you know, there's a like a white person who said, oh, I don't really feel comfortable talking about police brutality without a black person in the room who can talk about it. And I had so never that thought of that, that in my entire—I I was just like, oh, wow. And then the other person was like, yeah, me too. And I was like, whoa. And I literally hmm. have never felt that way Did that make life. you think that they were really just uncomfortable talking about it, period? And that was a fair— well, And no, also, no, did you are- feel insulted because you feel aligned with minorities yeah. kind of culturally yeah. and ethnically? Uh, did that make you feel insulted? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it made me feel insulted. I mean, what I think the, the way I view it is that there's there's these, you know, incidents of police brutality um, against African-Americans. You turn the dial one notch and that could be Mexicans. You turn the dial another notch, that could be Muslims. You turn the dial again, it's maybe women. And so I kind of view these things like all the same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't view myself separate from that right. struggle because it's the same, it's all on the same 10-sided die mm. or whatever. That's not how Dungeons dies are made. <laughs> You're a Dungeons & Dragons player, clearly. <laughs> yes. When you ask the question about being uncomfortable, though, a white person being uncomfortable talking about race, here, what I was trying to say in that long preamble that I, I never really got to was that I fear that the tenor of the conversation, especially the public Mm. conversation about race, has made more white people more uncomfortable Mm. to have Mm -hmm. good, productive, fruitful conversations about race. And I think that is the unintended consequence and the sad consequence of – now, look, you could say, well, that's a – who cares about that consequence when the reality is that a lot of people of color are being mistreated, right? That's the problem. Right. The problem isn't that white people are uncomfortable <laughs> talking about it, right? right? But the fact is, is that if you look at the history of any kind of societal improvement, whether it's healthcare, whether it's civil rights or whatever, these things are usually incremental. Um, there's not the magic bullet. There's not the proclamation. Fall- I mean, look yeah. at but, slavery. Look at but how Steve, long it's like what you said, though. The, the problem is like worse than ever, it seems, in some ways— yeah, I actually don't know how true that is. Uh, and in fact, is very few of us know how true it is because the data on these things are really are really murky. I mean, it depends how you ask the question. If I'm going to be, if I were not me, a white American male of my age, if I were a black American male my age, or maybe 
20 years younger, which would put me in a more of a, a danger zone, would my life today be overall less dangerous than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago? I think the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Mm-hmm. Even though it's easy to think that that's not the case. I think the data show that pretty pretty unequivocally. But that doesn't mean that the environment is comforting to anyone right. on any level. And my fear is that, like I said, the way that we, capital W, I guess, have the conversation about race, particularly in the media, which is, has an outsized influence, I think it discourages um, a lot of white people from engaging in the conversation in a way that potentially could be productive for the society. I don't know well, if that's true, but that's um, that's a fear and suspicion of mine. And, and, and Stephen, just, just to address that and to ask you, Nagin, Nagin, you're... A stand-up comic, obviously, a lot of stand-up comedians uh, like Louis C.K. is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about race pretty regularly in yeah. their act, and extremely like they will say extreme things. How does that make you feel? I love it. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I think though, so my, so I wonder. Is there is there ever a line though? Well, sh- yeah, I, I'm, definitely there's a line, and I think. You know, when it's, I think people like Louis C.K. do it very responsibly, you know, and they know, and it's one of those, you don't know where the line is, but you know it when you see it kind of situations. And so I worry, though, that we are creating a situation where uh, it, like, when we're trying to be so politically correct, we kind of like, you know, put five layers of junk on top of what we mean, and then we stuff our kind of frustration into our pockets and hope that it goes away, but then it bubbles up into something like uh, a white supremacist Twitter right, feed. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. And like it just, I think it, like, yeah, it, it <clears throat> well, makes the problem. I, don't know that. I think it, when I, so I made this movie called The Muslims Are Coming, and we went around the country, right? Scary movie. Scary, scary movie <laughs> about the coming Muslim apocalypse. And um, we, we, it was, it, we went around the country, it rattled up a bunch of Muslim American comedians in a nonviolent way. And we uh, did stand up shows in, in all these different uh, kind of red states or whatever. And uh, one of the questions that I got, often, you know, was like, what was the most, what was the greatest thing that happened on that tour, whatever. And I think... What one, was the greatest thing that happened on that tour, Nikki? <laughs> or like one of the most memorable things. And I think the the best thing that happened was that we got to the point in having conversations with, with regular Americans in Birmingham or Columbus, Georgia, or whatever, wherever we were, where people could say, ask me the question, like, why do you call yourself Iranian-American? Why can't you mm. just call yourself American-American? Mm. That kind of question, I think, is is considered um, racist or oh. faux pas or whatever, all See, of I, those things. I, and I, I think, think it's a, a good great, question. I think that's a great question, but there's a lot, that, we, there's a lot of fear embedded in making so, those kind and asking those kinds of questions. So, do you think if you'd done that same that same exact show mm-hmm. in a real blue state or a blue city, mm-hmm. you're saying that people wouldn't have been willing to ask that kind of question? I think they on maybe average. would have been too sensitive, right? You know, and they would want to be culturally appropriate and like mm. all of that stuff. And I think what's what's happening is we're not answering earnest and sincere questions that like white people might have about race and ethnicity. And so, as a result, there, I think it leads to Donald Trump. Okay, we do have to pause for a minute to hear from our sponsor. Won't take long. Question of the day. We'll be right back. We're happy to have Allstate once again as a sponsor of today's question of the day. 
James, you and I usually were up for a good debate, but there's no room to argue with this opportunity from Allstate. I know, Stephen, because we try to argue about this one, but there's just so many benefits to opening your own Allstate agency. Instead of finding a problem, we came to this conclusion. Why wouldn't you do this? Because with Allstate, you're going to own your own business, a business where you get big rewards for growth, unlimited earning potential, and a lot of equity for the future. And when you're the boss, you create the office culture and vision for the workplace with the power of the Allstate brand behind you. Working with the Good Hands Company is about helping people live the good life. Sounds like a pretty good deal, James. So if you haven't thought about opening your own Allstate agency, you should. Head over to allstateagent.com slash question of the day after the show to see stories from successful agents. And of course, this is subject to the terms of the agency agreement. You know... I once went to this museum exhibit in London, and it was like a history of the Vikings. And I didn't even really think about it, just went. And, and you see that like the Vikings were unbelievably good at what they did. And what they did was build really fast ships and sneak up on people and beat the shit out of them. And they were great at it. But they didn't really do much else. They didn't really build society. Right. They didn't spread their language. Irrigation systems. No, none of that. Mm. Um, the, even though that was around, the Romans were doing this. They didn't make their own money even. They used some form of Arab money from the Arab world. They, they didn't really create much. But for a while, if you had to make a bet on who's going to win the world, you would have bet Vikings, right? And the Vikings didn't win. And I'm very grateful for that because I look at the three of us I'm thinking we wouldn't be here if the Vikings had won, right? For all kinds of reasons. Right. First of all, we're all right now. well, we're all wearing glasses, first of all. So that's a handicap that would have gotten you immediately excluded from any Viking. But here's what I'm saying. I love the fact that the world, what won was basically the rule of knowledge and the rules of science and the rules of civil society and democracy, whatever you want to call it. Nation building. And that's awesome. That's a great victory. But I feel that we are not fully exploiting that advantage by using the um, impulses and the intellectual kind of heft that comes along with that to solve certain other kinds of problems that on the surface wouldn't seem that hard. You know, you want to look at and say, man, there have been many multicultural societies around the world throughout history that they didn't, none of them were perfect. But, and I feel like um, because we're not using our intellect to engage in the conversation about race, and by race, I mean way beyond just black and white, I feel it's a handicap and, and well, I find that to be a sadness. I have a question for you though. What multicultural society has really functioned that way? Look, I'm not a, at all an historian, but um, Barcelona around the turn of the 20th century was a place where a lot of people moved from all over. New York City, look, my relatives, your relatives, I don't know where your relatives came in to this country, although more recently than mine. When, when my relatives came into the country, they were about as low as you could go. It was one barely literate, poor Jewish guy who left his family in Poland and came here to do, you know, it's a standard thing, right? But there was a period in America, and there's still very much in most ways that same environment where you would be maybe discriminated against and maybe cheated and maybe ridiculed, but you had a chance to make it happen. And I think in order to continue that effort collectively, we need to have conversations that are harder now to have when frictions are so high that many or most well-meaning white people are scared to say anything. That's that's my feeling. So that was a long answer to your question about how comfortable you are. I want to be more comfortable than I am. That's the short answer. Yeah, I mean, and I think 
you should just take it. You know, be comfortable and and because like it's it's really not going to help anyone if we're, you know, if we're if we're quiet about it. So, let's say for people listening to this, or for us, and let's say you're white. What do you mean when you say just take it? What are some actionable items for white people to engage in or have conversations about race? I think you know you can ask. I think. Maybe what what seems happens oftentimes is a white person might be in a position to ask questions and they feel awkward or embarrassed or whatever. They don't want to be insensitive or culturally inappropriate, and so they don't ask those questions. And I think that's where the conversation shuts down. You know, it gets shut down before it ever even started. What's the kind of question that you or someone like you wishes that I or someone like me would ask? Well, and I I think, and then the example I gave earlier is, you know, when I was on the road, um, someone I think was brave enough to say, why don't you call yourself Mm. American-American? Why do you have to call yourself Iranian-American? And I think that's okay. That's a legitimate question. You know, you... At, uh, What's the answer to that? Well, and and for me, the answer to that is that, like, you know, you've been here for so many generations. It doesn't – you you don't feel anything about having been a Scotsman or whatever mm-hmm. um, or from coming from that lineage. It doesn't mean anything to you. You didn't grow up, I don't know, eating haggis or whatever dumb stereotype I'll use to talk about the Scots. Um, and so, so for – you know, but to ask me to call myself American-American is to, to kind of deny – like certainly the first 18 years of my life when I lived with my parents and was deeply surrounded by Iranianness, um, but also just my ongoing life as like a person who views the world through this very Iranian but also very American lens. You know, I just inhabit mm. both things and I can't just to make someone else feel comfortable deny one of those things. We'll share a clip from our next episode right after this. With Allstate, there's no need to pick sides. You can own your own business and you can be your own boss. This opportunity is a no-brainer. So head on over to allstateagent.com slash question of the day to get more information about opening your own agency. Here's what we have lined up for the next episode of Question of the Day. What does a late 40s-something guy, just like you, James Altucher, do to shake things up a little and reinvent their work life? Pretty specific question. This is a very important question. I actually think you need to... I think in general, people need to reinvent every four, five, six years. Question of the Day is produced and mixed by Nathan Rossborough with Allison Hockenberry. 